0: church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Cross Point Peachtree City. I'm excited to have you guys with us. Uh, Summer has officially begun and so we shall see what unfolds over the next couple of months as everyone takes their vacations and is in and out. I would encourage you on the front end of uh, a new series that we jump into even this morning to plug in when you're gone this summer to try to get the fullness of this series via podcast even when you're not able to make it. But I'm excited that you are here this morning. Uh, if you're new, uh, if this is your first time or maybe uh, you've been here a couple times, you've connected with us on a Sunday morning, excited that you're here um, just to give you a little bit of an idea of who we are, Cross Point Peachtree City was planted a little over three years ago. So we're a relatively new church plant, still very much in our infancy in a number of ways, and yet quickly moving toward becoming a self sustaining congregation by God's grace. We are Uh, a part of a multi-congregational church. And so we have uh, a number of other congregations, all of which besides ours are in central Florida. So we're a little bit of a guinea pig. We were sent out from a church uh, that was planted originally in the Orlando area uh, to see what God might be up to in reaching the city of Atlanta by the power of the gospel. And so uh, we wait on Jesus as he uh, reveals his plan for how he wants to build his church. And we just continue to to plow away um, at the ground here in Peachtree City and the surrounding areas. And God has been on the move. He's done a number of glorious things in the first three years of this church's existence. He continues to do great things um, in the hearts of his people and through his people for the sake of this community and the outreaching areas of Peachtree City. And so uh, if you have more questions about Crosspoint Peachtree City in particular or Crosspoint at large, come find me after the service. Let's chat, let's set up a time to grab coffee, Uh, especially if you're new and you have questions about those things or perhaps a number of other things. Uh, This morning, if you are new, you came on a great week. If you came last week and it was your first time, you were probably really bummed out that you came on the last week of a sermon series and trying to figure out how to connect the dots. Um, But this week, we jump into a new series entitled uh, The Nine Virtues. And so over the course of this summer, we'll essentially be looking at what it means to cultivate the character of Christ. We, we know, we talk about this all the time, that salvation comes not by character cultivation, right? Um, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone, we have any hope for salvation. Yet where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will too exist. Or one way you could say it would be um, from every gospel root comes gospel fruit. But what does that mean? What, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, What does it mean to live a life, as Paul says in Galatians 5, of love, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of patience, a life of, uh, of kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, that which we commonly refer to in the church as the fruit of the Spirit? Why does it matter that we commit ourselves to that kind of endeavor in the first place? And, and lastly, and perhaps most importantly, how can we practically do it? How how do we do that? How do we keep in step with the Spirit of God? What does that look like? And so those are just a few of the questions that I hope to answer over the course of the next couple months as we plow our way through this series. This morning, the goal is simply to present an overview of, of the life lived according to the Spirit by taking a look at Galatians 5 where we get the layout of the fruit of the Spirit. Um. We're not going to come back to Galatians 5 every week, just to be clear and kind of set the expectation. Rather, next week we'll take a look at a passage that unpacks love, and then we'll move to a passage that unpacks what a life of joy looks like, and peace, and patience, and so forth, and so on. And by God's grace, my hope is that we will experience both encouragement and conviction by the power of the Spirit, and that we will grow to be more and more people who trust in the Spirit of God. Uh, To uh, do what he's going to do in sanctifying us as Christians, and that we will grab hold of our part to play in participating in in the waging of war against the sin nature for God's glory and our joy. And so, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Galatians 5. Uh, We'll be in verses 16 through 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours for free as the church's gift to you. Take it and and explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time, please. Let me pray for us, and and we'll go ahead and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. God, my assumption would be this morning that Many of us come into this place, and we feel a bit like a pinball, just being slung back and forth between encouragement and discouragement as it pertains to uh, living out this thing called the Christian life, Uh, that for many of us, it feels like it's two steps forward and one step back. There are probably many in this room that are very encouraged in the season that they're in right now, and there are probably those who feel very defeated. And so, God, I pray that Galatians 5 would awaken all of our hearts no matter what we bring to the table this morning, no matter where we are. God, I pray that we would see uh, the glorious third person of the Trinity for who he is. Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see clearly the role that you play in conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus. And God, that you would help us to see the role that we play in participating in that great work. God, I pray that uh, this series uh, would would do what it's described as being in the first place, which is cultivate fruit. Gotta pray that we wouldn't walk out of here better understanding the dictionary defi- uh, definition according to the scriptures of love and joy and peace and patience and so forth and so on, uh, only to then become theological bobbleheads who just keep it in the realm of intellectual assent. but rather, I pray that we would truly become a people who uh, see the fruit of the Spirit more and more in our lives. God, we thank you for Jesus, without whom we would have no hope of any of this, without whom uh, the the fruit of the Spirit, these virtues that we're going to talk about, just become a striving and a clawing after your favor, which is impossible. We desperately need the foundation of the gospel to dive into this morning's text and the remainder of this series. So Jesus, we love you. We thank you for doing what we could never do, which is to live the life, the perfect sinless life that we could never live, dying the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sin and rising from the dead, conquering our great enemies of sin and death. Jesus, we love you. Uh, by the power of the Spirit, we lift these things up in your name. Amen. Now, through my prayer, I've already given a little bit of an idea of where we're going this morning, so uh, let me just uh, reframe that. Um, This morning, as we dive into Galatians 5, the goal is this I want you, I desperately want you to see that uh, God is committed to your sanctification, but we must be also. And so, my hope is that you see divine sovereignty and human responsibility collide in Galatians 5 this morning, that your heart is awakened to the beauty and wonder and power of the Holy Spirit, and that you're awakened to come up off the bench if that's where you find yourself sitting right now to fight, to wage war. For the glory of God and for your own joy. If you look at verse 16, Paul lays it out very well. This is kind of Paul's thesis statement. This, uh, this, first, uh, this first sentence that makes up this morning's passage. He says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Before we go any further this morning, what, what can we say about the Holy Spirit? Um, for some, uh, the Holy Spirit is believed to be this sort of impersonal force, and so we call the Spirit an it rather than a he, as Jesus describes the Spirit, um, very personally. For others of it, we, we believe the Holy Spirit to be a, a person of the Godhead, um, but rather uh, our theology oftentimes on the ground becomes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. Or maybe we look at the Holy Spirit as the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity, the, the participation ribbon of the Trinity, so to speak. Like he's there, but his role is so less significant than the Father and the Son. And so what I want to do is give us just for a few minutes a little bit of a crash course in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, particularly his work in creation and redemption. And my hope is that that awakens us to go, man, the Spirit is amazing. And that matters because we're walking in stride with the Spirit who is actually leading this charge in the first place. So what can we say about the Holy Spirit? Well, we can, in fact, say that the Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is fully God, equal in dignity, power, and worth with God the Father and God the Son. In Acts chapter five, uh, you get this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, It's a story of man uh, in sin at his worst. And Peter accuses Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to ask Ananias the following question. He says, why is this that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so the the, the narrative goes, Ananias lies to the Holy Spirit. And then Peter says, you haven't lied to man, but to God. Peter equates the Spirit with deity. In in David's famous Prayer in Psalm 139, many of you are familiar with these words. David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? So Peter attributes omnipresence to the Holy Spirit, an attribute that only God possesses. This idea that God in his fullness is everywhere at all times. Something that we like to think we can pull off in our own strength, but we can't, right? We can only be at one place at a time, and that frustrates our souls, many of us, often. The Apostle Paul attributes omniscience to the Holy Spirit, knowing all things in their fullness. He says this in 1 Corinthians 2. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Again, another divine attribute that you and I don't share with God. We'd like to think that we know it all, but we don't. Only God does. According to Hebrews chapter 9, he's referred to as the eternal spirit. He has no beginning, no end. Again, eternality is an attribute possessed by God alone. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved, who can be resisted, who can be insulted according to the scriptures. Which is why Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as he In John 14 and John 16 amongst a number of other places in the Bible. The Holy Spirit in terms of his work. We talked about this in the last series. Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit was active in creation. Hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1.2. Think about this. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary. According to Matthew 1 and Luke 1. It was the Holy Spirit who anointed and empowered Jesus at his baptism. Matthew 3. It was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus cast out demons amongst a a number of other miracles, a vast number of miracles. It was the Holy Spirit who was poured out on many on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2. Think think about this. You ever read that famous paragraph in Acts chapter 2 where you see the church at her best and you go, Man, that would be nice, wouldn't it? to selflessly give all of our possessions, just throw it in the middle and we live for each other and we love one another and we're unified and we're in the scriptures together. We're breaking bread with one another. We're a people of prayer. You read that passage and you go, yes, and amen to that. That would be the greatest church to be a part of. If we could just redo Acts chapter two. Well, think about this. Acts chapter two, when you read that paragraph, is a direct result of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, It's the Spirit who empowers that church. It's the Spirit who makes us alive in Christ, who raises us from spiritual death to life, according to John chapter 3. It's the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you have any assurance that you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is doing that in you. It's the Spirit who sanctifies us, bringing forth the character of Christ. Romans 8, 1 Peter 1, Galatians 5. It's the Spirit who intercedes for us in prayer. You ever find yourself on your knees going, I don't even know what to say. The Spirit groans for you in those moments. Romans 8. It's the Spirit who guides and directs God's people. The Spirit leads us providentially as we live out our story under the banner of God's greater story. It's the Spirit who teaches us and guides us in all truth. It's the Spirit who empowers us For service, 1 Corinthians 12. Remember the the 1 Corinthians series from the fall? Those of you who were around, we talked about spiritual gifts. If you have any, that's due to the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. It's the Spirit who unifies believers. The reason that we're not at each other's throats like cats and dogs is because the Holy Spirit is at work within us, creating unity. Look around this room. There's, There's a lot that makes us different from one another. The one thing that we can bank on that makes us alike is we love and serve Jesus, we believe him to be on the throne, and we believe him to have died for our sins. The spirit draws us together, even though we have much, not so uh, so much in common. It's the spirit who guarantees our future fellowship with God. He's the seal of our salvation. It's through the spirit that we will experience the resurrection of our mortal bodies on the last day. When you're given a glorified physical resurrection body, the hope that you have that that's going to happen is because the Holy Spirit is going to empower that work. Think about this. Even the very Bible that you hold right now is referred to as what? The sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6.17. In fact, the reason you and I have a Bible in the first place is that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. The Spirit's at work in a number of ways that we easily forget. The Holy Spirit is glorious. The Spirit of God is quite glorious. And here's the crazy thing. You you take that entire list, and that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. That's me on a a holiday week trying to put together the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So it goes much further than that. It's, It's far more vast than that. But here's the crazy thing. Take all of those things encompassing. If you're a Christian, that very Holy Spirit indwells you. That's insane. Romans 8, 9 through 11, the third person of the Godhead indwells you, indwells me. And so my hope is that you let that thought drive you for the remainder of our time this morning. I think that is critical. We cannot assume the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We cannot assume that we've come in this morning and that our hearts are awakened to the beauty and wonder of the Spirit's power and work within us. Let that spur you on as we talk about what it means to cultivate the character of Christ because it's not just you participating. The spirit is at work leading the charge. You're not alone. The the spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead has set up permanent residency within you, okay? That, That may be the one thing you need to write on an index card this week and just have it stare you in the face. The third person of the Godhead indwells me. It's critical to get our minds around the power that's available to us through the spirit because whether you realize it or not, you're in the middle of a war and so am I. It's a war, Paul says, between the spirit and the flesh. And so we've talked about the spirit thus far. What can we say about the flesh? Well, when Paul uses the word flesh, we need to understand that he's talking about the sinful nature. Um, He's not using reductionistic language to describe uh, your physical um, makeup, It's not flesh as in flesh and bone per se. It goes much deeper than physical acts as Jesus made very clear at the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus is uh, unpacking what what it looks like to live a life uh, that's antithetical to the gospel and he says it's not just about adultery, it's also about lustful intent. It's not just about physical murder but it's about the anger that drives us to commit such an act. We know that The work of the flesh goes much deeper than physical acts because uh, if you fast forward to verses 19 through 21, Paul's list of the works of the flesh, you see some things in that list that don't have to do with the body per se. Things like jealousy, divisions, envy. So when Paul uses the language of the flesh, he's talking about the sinful nature as it pertains to, to the whole you, to the whole me. He's talking about our mind. He's talking about our emotions. He's talking about our our will when those things are out of step with the spirit. John Piper says it this way, very helpful quote in terms of defining the flesh. He says this, The flesh is the ego which feels an emptiness but loathes the idea of satisfying it by faith. Instead, the flesh prefers to use the the legalistic or licentious resources in its own power to fill the emptiness. Okay, think about that. You see what he's saying? He's saying, at times, your flesh will lead you down the road of of legalism. I don't think we think that way oftentimes. We think flesh, immorality. We think flesh, you know, paganistic thinking and and acting and, and feeling, but But what he's saying is that at times your flesh will actually lead you down the road of legalism. Taking your eyes off of Christ alone as the Galatians themselves had done. Declaring it's Jesus plus circumcision that saves. That was the the great problem for this church. That we can take our eyes off of Christ alone and fill the emptiness with our own works of righteousness. That's the flesh. But at other times the flesh will take you down the road of license, filling the emptiness with things other than God. Uh, As Paul says in Romans 1, worshiping and serving created things rather than creator God. And so one is self-exaltation through morality. It's look at me, aren't I virtuous? That's the work of the flesh. The other is self-exaltation through immorality. It's I don't have to play by God's rules. I can call the shots. It, It was the problem for our first parents in the garden going back to the last series that we worked through. And so as you engage this text this morning, ask yourself, well, which ditch am I prone to veer into when the flesh is at play? Is it the ditch of legalism? Is it, is it the ditch of license? Or, or are you like me, a pinball that just bounces back and forth when you're not walking in stride with the Spirit? My, my heart veers into the legalistic ditch oftentimes and into the licentious ditch at times as well. Um, I'm a very complex beast when it comes to the flesh rearing its ugly head. Paul says if you're a Christian, there's a war taking place between the spirit and the flesh. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Okay, let me just stop there. What Paul says in verse 17 is the most simplified theology that a human being can possibly throw out. Look at how he says this. Um, It's ABC kind of language. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other. In case you missed the first two parts of that statement. Hey, they don't like each other. They're fighting like two kids on a playground. That's what's going on here to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a movie that came out quite a while back now. Makes me feel old when I actually think about when it came out. Movie entitled Rounders. Rounders. Um, it's the story of a reformed gambler who returns to playing big, steak, uh, big stakes poker to help a friend pay off loan sharks. A very gritty movie. Matt Damon, Edward Norton, uh, John Malkovich. And uh, at one point early on in the movie, Matt Damon's character, Matt McDermott, is describing what it looks like to step up to the table and grab a seat um, to engage in a game, a five-card draw. And, uh, and he says this. He says, if you can't, Spot the sucker in your first half at the table, then you are the sucker. I think the Apostle uh, Apostle Paul would say the same thing about the battle for the human soul. When you look at this passage, if you can't see the war for what it is, if you've bought into the lie that there is no war, if you've convinced yourself that there's a morally neutral option that allows you to just stand off the battlefield altogether, well, You're the sucker. This morning's passage, very simply put, states if you're a Christian, you've got two options. There's not a third one. You can live according to the flesh, or you can live according to the spirit. This is where I think Piper's word picture that I've thrown out a couple times in recent history is very helpful that when you became a Christian, The Holy Spirit busted down the walls of your kingdom like a Sherman tank, headed for the castle, made a beeline for the throne, and promptly executed you so that Jesus could take his rightful place as king of the kingdom. That's what it means to be converted. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then you wake up the next day, and um, contrary to popular belief, you don't see flags of dominion just planted all over the kingdom yet, right? There's a battle taking place between the old troops, the troops of the flesh, of the sin nature going uh -uh, we don't we don't want a flag of dominion here in this part of the kingdom we're not we're not remotely ready for you to enter in and to do that to plant that flag and there are other areas where uh the the troops of the spirit come in and overcome uh the troops of the flesh the sinful nature and flags of dominion are planted for some of us it happens very quickly for those of you who are like me it is gruelingly slow you look out from the castle and you go man i wish there were a few more flags Uh, With invisibility, thank God for the few that I can see that affirm that I'm actually a Christian, that God is at work. He is sanctifying me, though it is gruelingly slow. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is a cage match. You're in the octagon, so to speak. It's a fight between the new self that longs for holiness and the old self that longs to call the shots. It's a fight between the new self who loves those flags of dominion to be planted and the old self who fights to keep the new king at bay. That's the Christian life. And so let me pause for a moment and say something that I hope will be very encouraging to you because it was encouraging to me this week as I sat with this passage. If you come in this morning frustrated with the The internal conflict that you experience day out and day in as a Christian, just that you feel like a pinball, just being slung back and forth, encouraged, discouraged, encouraged, discouraged. If you come in this morning and you go, man, some days I feel like there is great victory in my life as a Christian and other days I feel quite defeated. Let me say this. There's something far worse than experiencing the war between the flesh and the spirit. Namely, the absence of war altogether. The Holy Spirit not having busted through the walls of your kingdom like a Sherman tank. The flesh ruling and reigning from the throne of your life because Jesus isn't yet there. Be encouraged that there's a war taking place within you at all. If you experience that internal conflict, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit actually indwells you. That there's a fight there. That tension that you feel is a good thing. Before you became a Christian, you were fighting a losing fight. You had no chance of winning. Now that uh, you are a Christian, if you are one in fact, you're in a fight that if you wield the means of God's grace properly, you will indeed experience victory. That's exactly what Paul means by verse 18. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, this is a weird verse. I want you to think about this irony for just a second. Okay, the non-Christian is under the law, And yet, verses 19 through 21, lives lawlessly. The Christian is not under the law, but under grace, and yet lives lawfully by the power of the Spirit. Isn't that weird? Here's another way we could say it, to try to make sense of it. If you're not a Christian, your hope is in your own goodness, your own righteousness for salvation. You're counting on your your own ability to do do more good than bad and to come out unscathed in the end. And thus, you're counting uh, on on the law and your obedience to the law for any hope that you have. That how you live according to the law determines your destiny if you're not a Christian. And yet, according to verses 19 through 21, the flesh can't produce the goodness necessary to please God in the first place. So the non-Christian hopes in a law that he or she can't fulfill. On the flip side, the Christian knows that the law condemns him or her. The law reveals the deep need for a savior. Remember the language, uh, the word picture I gave before of uh, the law being like a mirror? It reveals the dirtiness within us, but no one takes a mirror off of the bathroom wall and uses it to clean their face. That would be super weird, right? It drives you to the water. The water is meant for cleansing. The same is true of the law in scripture. It drives us to the deep need for a savior, namely Jesus The law reveals a need for a savior outside of ourselves and thus the Christian turns to the perfect law keeper and substitute sin bearer, Jesus Christ. And thus the Christian is not under law, but under grace. Yet according to verse 22, the spirit actually produces obedience to that very law that we don't trust for salvation in the first place. Super weird, the irony of verse 18. The point of which is to say, if you're a Christian, the fruit will come. It's going to happen. It's what we talked about in the story series a few weeks ago. Sin will have no dominion over you if you're in Christ. That's a declaration. It's not a command. Paul says, you're going to experience the fruit of the Spirit. Like, that's going to happen. The Spirit is leading the charge, according to verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is far more invested than you and I are on most days. And we should be encouraged by that. The next few verses, Paul actually gives us a contrast of what it looks like to operate in these two worlds, these two domains, the domain of the flesh and the domain of the spirit. I think the contrast is very helpful. Look at uh, verses 19 through 21. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul says, when the desires of the flesh take over, you can expect to see these kind of manifestations of sin in your life. We'll actually address a number of the things on this list as we work our way through this series because many of these things are, are the, the actual antithesis of the very virtues that you see as you look at that list that makes up the fruit of the Spirit. And so I'm not going to unpack each of these individual manifestations of, of the sinful nature this morning. Um, for this morning's purposes, I, I just wanted you to notice a few things uh, in verses 19 through 21. Number one, no, notice again that we're not just talking about... Physical acts of sin. This list addresses the mind, the emotions, and the will of a person. That one way you could say it is this sin is not just what you see above the dirt in your life. In fact, what we see above the dirt is usually a manifestation of of something troublesome below the dirt, is it not? That's driving that, that's motivating that. A root idol in the human heart that drives us to think, to feel, to act the way we do in those moments of sin and unbelief. And so one way that we could say that we should come at this series is to say this, that killing sin oftentimes requires a shovel. That part of the call of Galatians 5 is to to grab a shovel and to, to begin excavating what's below the dirt at a heart level in our lives. Secondly, notice that this list is not exhaustive. It's really unfair what Paul does here. He lays out this pretty lengthy, detailed list and then he ends it with the words, and things like these. Because he knows the human heart. He, he knows what we'll do with a list. He knows that we'll look at that list and go, okay, uh, sexual immorality, okay, not, not doing that one. I'm morally uh, virtuous in that area. Purity, check. Jealousy, no problem there. Check. And, and so he, he throws out this junk drawer phrase that basically says, hey, things like these, as you look at other passages of scripture, the list is far greater than what I'm throwing out here in order to not have to pay extra postage. I'm just gonna keep it really short for you guys, but, but I'm gonna throw in that junk drawer term, making very clear that we can't just let ourselves off the hook by checking boxes. Number three, Uh, Notice that according to verse 21, he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do such things will not inherit everything that we talked about the last two weeks of the series uh, on the story. Revelation 21 and 22. If you were here, all of the glory, all of the splendor, all of the beauty, the new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem, God on his throne, his glory lighting up the whole place like the 4th of July. Paul says, those who do such things as what we see in verses 19 through 21 will not inherit that world to come. What do we do with that? What does Paul mean there? Does he mean that if you've fallen into sexual immorality in recent history, hell is your future home? Does he mean that if you've gotten angry with your spouse in in recent history, that hell is your future home? Does he mean that if you've been divisive with another human being in recent history that hell is your future home? Man, I hope not. I'm done for if that's what he means. I think the good news is that the Greek word translated do in verse 21, those who do such things, that's the Greek word proso, which means a regular practice, a routine or habit so going back to, to what we talked about before, if there's if there's an internal fight being fought, that's a sign that the Spirit of God indwells you and you belong to Jesus. If, if you find yourself going, I want a war against this, I, I'm, I'm willing to do battle here. Even when I, I find myself losing from time to time. On the flip side, and I don't think we should just sweep this one under the rug, I think this passage is a sobering warning to those who have no fight in them at all. If there's no fight in you at all, I think it it very much does warrant the difficult question, does the Spirit of God indwell me? Am I His? Has the Holy Spirit busted down the wall of my kingdom like a Sherman tank and made a beeline for the throne and promptly executed me so that Jesus could take His rightful place? Verse 22, we make the turn. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, which is the whole point of this series, we'll be looking at the virtues that make up this list for the next nine weeks, what we're really talking about are the communicable attributes of God. If you pick up a, a systematic theology book, which I'm sure everyone's going to do this week, um, there's, a, there's a, a unit that's typically included in that book that's uh, entitled either the shared and unshared attributes of God or the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Communicable simply means it can be caught Okay, so incommunicable, going back to what we talked about earlier with the Holy Spirit, omnipresence, everywhere at all times. That's not one that God shares with us unless you have some superhero power that I'm unaware of. Um, Omniscience, knowing everything about everything. That's not one that we share with God. But we do share a number of God's attributes with him as uh, those created in his image. Love, beauty, wisdom, justice. Grace and so forth and so on. Communicable, meaning it can be caught. Okay, so think in terms of a communicable disease being something that's contagious. The closer you get to someone, the more likely you are to catch what they have. I have two girls under two that I share a roof with. So when I get sick, so do they. When they get sick, so do I. I share my lips with my wife. I know that's, you know, something that pastors don't normally say from the stage, at least not... Not in the deep south, but I do. We kiss. It happens. And, and so when she gets sick, so do I. When I get sick, so does she. She's squirming in her seat right now. <laughs> the, the communicable attributes of God are those attributes that the closer you get to God, you can catch them. The difference is we're not talking about a disease when it comes to the attributes of God. We're talking about the very character of God, something gloriously beautiful. That if you spend time with God, if you fix your gaze upon God and his word, if you meditate on who God is for you in Christ, if you soak in the gospel, it has a way of changing you. It just does. Jesus says it this way in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That it's about abiding. Abiding in Christ. When you abide in Christ, the more Christ-like you become. We're so quick to, to get into our, our uh, behavior modification list, are we not? We leave and we're like, all right, time to go check boxes. And we, do, we, we check, 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 do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And, and we're completely oftentimes doing a heart bypass when we do that, are we not? We're, we're so... Quick to get busy doing the next thing, that this idea of abiding in Christ, of just spending time with Christ in the way that I do with my daughters, even when they're sick, such that it, it causes me to get sick in those moments, the drawing near to Him, that's actually what produces and cultivates Christ likeness, our abiding in Christ. I think that's critical to grasp because it, it tells us that we're not on our own, that, that it's not in our own strength that. We grow this fruit of the Spirit as Paul describes it. Verse 24, notice that it's not a fully passive experience either. He says this, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. All right, this is, this is weird language, is it not? Paul says, those who belong to Jesus, past tense, Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You go, man, I don't feel like the flesh has been crucified. I think it's still breathing. Right? Can we all just throw out an amen on that one? Like we that's how we feel. We're going, what is Paul talking about in verse 24? How do you explain that past tense crucifixion language? This is where I think the story in Judges chapter 9 of Abimelech, we talked about this again, in the last series is helpful. Abimelech was one of the judges. Um, He he was a a corrupt, ruthlessly wicked individual. Uh, He slaughtered all of his siblings so that he could inherit rulership of Israel. And a few years after inheriting that rulership, he found himself in a battle. Uh, And as a part of that battle, he was very near the city wall uh, that they were looking to infiltrate. And a woman from the top of the city wall dropped a millstone over the side of the wall that delivered a crushing blow to Abimelech's head, his skull. In fact, the scriptures say it crushed his very skull. Such that he knew that death was certain. And this is how corrupt and egotistic uh, of an individual Abimelech was. He asked his armor bearer to thrust a sword in him so that it couldn't be said of him that he died at the hands of a woman. I think that story is helpful because... It not only explained what Jesus did to the devil of hell on the cross, right? We know that Jesus crushed the serpent's head when he died and was raised from the dead at Calvary, that the death blow was to, delivered. And yet we look around and we go, Satan's still breathing, is he not? And he is. You can be sure of that. But there's also an awareness that the inflicted blow at the cross was so definitive, like the, the crushing blow to Abimelech's skull. That death is certain. There's no recovery from what happened at Calvary for Satan. And the same thing is true of the sinful nature within you. That what Paul is saying is that um, that there is a definitive certainty of the death of your flesh that happened when you became a Christian. And yet, the flesh still breathes. As we grow and are conformed more and more into the image of Jesus until we either breathe our last breath or until Jesus returns... The flesh is still at war with the spirit. There's still this this battle taking place, but you can trust that when you were brought from spiritual death to life, that a, a definitive crushing blow was delivered to the old self in such a way that you can bank on the fact that the old self is not going to emerge victorious in the end. Rather, the new self, the new creation, who we are in Christ, will win that war. And so let me say it this way. Perhaps somewhere along the way, um, you've had someone tell you to picture yourself nailing Jesus to the cross, to allow that image of you driving the nails into his hands all over again to compel you not to sin. Anyone heard that one before? Let me just, let me just wreck that for you. That's terrible theology, okay? There's no more crucifying of Jesus to be done. It is finished, Right? He said that and he meant it. What we need is not an image of us killing Jesus all over again. What we need is an image of Jesus enthroned as our sin-conquering savior. What we need is a bigger eyeful of the sufficiency of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What we need is an increased awareness of how lavish his love and grace is for us. If you're going to picture anyone being crucified in moments of temptation... Picture you. Picture the old self, the sinful nature who desperately wants to climb down off of that cross and breathe new life. According to verse 24, the death blow has been delivered to the old self. You can be certain of that. It happened when you became a Christian, and now we participate in moving toward the final breath of the flesh by daily driving the nail in a little deeper. And let's be honest for a second it's not easy. When you see the word crucifixion, let's not pretend that the crucifixion of the sinful nature is an easy thing. It's called crucifixion for a reason. If you go back to the the creation of crucifixion by the Persians, the perfecting of it by the Romans, crucifixion was a painful way to die, such that there was not a word to describe it in the human language, so they had to create one. It's the word excruciating, excruciating. X meaning out of cruci the cross crucify out of the cross excruciating. That's what that word literally means. Putting the sinful nature to death can be excruciating. It can be painful. And not just painful, crucifixion was a gradual way to die right men would sit on those crosses for days oftentimes before breathing their last breath similarly there are no shortcuts when it comes to crucifying the sinful nature within us it takes time oftentimes it does look like two steps forward one step back but here's the encouraging part if you if you use that imagery of crucifixion when it existed in human history yes crucifixion is both painful and gradual but it's also final When a criminal was crucified, guards made sure that the victim was in fact dead every single time. And in fact, when they got it wrong, the guards were killed themselves. The same is true of the the war against the flesh. God, as a guard, is there to ensure that the sinful nature remains on the cross until it is unquestionably dead. The sinful nature will not emerge victorious in the end. That should encourage us, be encouraged by that. That the sinful nature did in fact receive its death blow on the cross and now we participate in moving toward the final breath of the flesh by daily driving nails into it. Whatever that looks like in your life. We continue to spear it in the side until it breathes its last breath by the power of the spirit. We don't help the sinful nature down from the cross. We oftentimes wanna do that, don't we? Man, I don't know if I really want it dead. I really like experiencing this, that, and the other. We don't let it down from the cross. Rather, we treat it the way Jesus was treated on his cross. So that's one side of sanctification, the killing of sin. But it's not just about killing the sinful nature. There's there's also a breathing of life element to the Christian life. And I want to close with that as we look at our final verse this morning. Verse 25, Paul says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There's a, there's a theological term that we don't use very much these days. sounds really cool. It's hard to get out of your mouth. It's the word vivification. Vivification means to breathe life into or to animate. So think of God animating Adam in the garden in Genesis 2. If you go back even just a few weeks ago when we looked at that passage of Scripture... We're told that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There's animation, the animation of the first human being. Sanctification similarly involves putting the sinful nature to death, yes and amen, driving that nail a little deeper, squeezing the life out of it, you might say. But it also involves breathing life into or nourishing the new self. Look at the look at the language that Paul uses here in this final verse. I find this super encouraging, and you're going to think this is weird when I say this. Uh, he says it's ultimately about keeping in step with the Spirit. That's military language. It's the idea of staying in formation. So you go, uh, how is military language encouraging, Jamie? Anytime I think of uh, the phrase boot camp, I don't necessarily get encouraged by that. In fact, I uh, I've never thought about even entering that world because it just sounds miserable so how is that how is that encouraging well here's the deal if you go with that imagery if you've talked to guys who have been through boot camp what what you don't hear are, are guys who say on day 1 i was thinking about uh, the final product rather it's very much when i woke up on day 1 i thought about just surviving day 1 <laughs> And then I woke up on day two and I looked at the tasks before me and I engaged those and I went to bed tired at the end of the day and I woke up on day three and I did it all over again and so forth and so on. And so if you go with that imagery, the good news is you have one thing to worry about, namely keeping in step with the spirit of God today. You don't have to worry about the final product. You don't have to worry about in the big picture how you're gonna get there. You just have to listen to the Holy Spirit, which typically comes through the ordinary means of God's grace. Time in the scriptures, sitting under the preached word of God, the sacraments, baptism and communion, time spent in prayer, time spent with other Christians, time spent with a shovel in hand, so to speak, excavating heart idols, time spent preaching the gospel to yourself, that Part of Paul's idea of sanctification is this. When you wake up tomorrow, align your steps with the Spirit's leading. And then do that again Tuesday. And then again Wednesday. And then again Thursday and Friday and so forth and so on. And you'll find that in the bigger picture, you're actually living by the Spirit. It's quite amazing. As a guy who gets devastated at the thought of all the work that God has yet to do in my heart, I find that super encouraging. It's kind of like eating healthy. I don't have to lose all the weight today. I don't have to be at my goal weight today. I just have to eat a few healthy meals today and then wake up tomorrow and do it all over again. It's one day at a time. When you wake up tomorrow, on the one hand, pound the nails a little deeper in the sinful nature. And on the other hand, align your steps with the Spirit's leading through the ordinary means of God's grace. And do all of that knowing that your identity is rooted in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf and that the third person of the Godhead indwells you and is going to see it to its completion. You go, what if I wake up tomorrow and it feels like my prayers are hitting a ceiling? Well, remember, the Spirit groans for you in those moments. What if I wake up tomorrow and I don't feel like my time in the scriptures was very fruitful, was very productive well, trust that that's one of thousands that you're going to experience in the scriptures. And, and, and it just might be tomorrow that God does a great work in your heart. I'll close with this. What we're going to talk about for the next two months, I think, is impossible to live in isolation. Living by the Spirit is not an exercise that works Alone. It's foolishness to try to live this out on your own. Because here's the deal. When you don't think that you can take another step in stride with the Spirit of God, you need fellow soldiers to help you along. I know I do. When you get discouraged, you need fellow soldiers to help you see the strides that have been made in your life in recent history. To, To look out and to go... I see a flag of dominion here and here and here and that tells me that the spirit of God indwells you and he's gonna see this work to its completion even though it doesn't feel like it right now in this very moment. When you forget the glorious promise that the third person of the Godhead indwells you, you need brothers and sisters who will remind you that the Holy Spirit will squeeze the final breath out of the sinful nature and will conform you fully to the image of Jesus. The death blow has been delivered. Jesus has done what we could never do in purchasing our redemption. So let's trust in the Holy Spirit who indwells us to bring the work to completion. And as we do, let's participate in squeezing the life out of the old self and breathing life into the new self. And let's do that in the lives of one another, taking advantage of this beautiful and gracious gift of community as we plow along for the glory of God and our joy. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We do that here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, as you prepare to, to take of uh, the sacrament of communion this morning, I would encourage you just to, to visualize Christ crucified, Not you driving the nail into his hands one more time, but envision uh, Christ crucified and risen, that that it is finished, that it's done, that Jesus has done everything necessary to secure your redemption. Sit with the beautiful truth that the, the same spirit who was a part of creation, who's been a part of the work of redemption throughout the course of redemptive history is at work within you right now, whether you feel like he is or not. And let's be encouraged, let's celebrate as we come take communion this morning. If God is is calling you to repentance, to drive the nail a little deeper in the sinful nature, whatever that looks like, spend time with him in that. If God is, is calling you to press deeper into the spiritual disciplines so that a breathing of life and animating of your very soul might happen then spend time with that this morning, whatever that looks like to walk in further faith and repentance. Let's let's do that, knowing that our joy and the glory of God are at stake. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S p o i n t e p t c dot com